would you do me a favor? Would you just, I just feel like we ought to do this. Just give it up for God for making it available for you to be in a free world right here, to be able to come and worship him with other people in a safe environment. All right, yes, yes. Man, it's good to see you. Thank you so much for being here. We're thrilled that you're in the house of God today. Now, last week, I had an opportunity uh, to go and uh, have a little bit of a fishing experience with my six-year-old grandson. Y'all know, whenever I go see my grandkids, I'm going to come back with a grandkid story, okay? That's just the way it is. So, we got to go fishing together, man. Uh, They live... um, kind of in an area where it kind of backs up to a pond right behind their house. And so I was sitting in the house one day and looked out and I saw that Ace was out there uh, casting his line into the pond. So I walked out there and uh, he's got his little, you know, Mickey Mouse little thing and he's got a lure on, he's thrown out there and he throws it out in the pond. He lets the lure kind of sink down to the bottom and then he pulls it in and it's got all this seaweed on it. So he does that two or three times and every time he pulls it over to me, I pull the seaweed off. And, and so I explained to him, I said, buddy, that lure is supposed to kind of jiggle in the water a little bit. Don't let it go to the bottom. Throw it out and start reeling right there. Don't let it go to the bottom. You're just gonna get a seaweed, you're not gonna get a fish. And uh, you know that <laughs> six-year-olds, man, they, they already got all the mysteries of life figured out, okay? So he explained to me how wrong I was about that. And I said, okay, man, just knock yourself out. So he kept casting, let it go to the bottom, seaweed, I take it off. So I don't know, eight, 10 times. And, um, and I said, okay, are you, are you catching it? And so he handed me the pole and said, why don't you try? Now, what I'm about to tell you is the truth from almighty heaven, okay? I throw it in one time and cast it, bam, caught a fish. First, y'all think I'm lying, don't you, huh? This is the honest truth. And I pull it up, and it's just a little bass, probably about a pound on there. First cast, and his eyes are like this. And I said, hold this. I gave him the pole. You hold it. I'm going to run in, get my phone. I'll come back, take a picture. Everybody think you caught it. So I run in the house. I get my phone. I come back. He's standing there with the pole. The lines broke. There's no fish anywhere. I said, dude, what happened? And he said, well, I, I thought it needed a drink. And so I put it in the water and it, and it fell off. And I, I, as a grandfather, as a grandpa, I handled that externally, really gentle and kind of laughed about it, but internally, that messed me up. That was my fish, my fish that he let go of. Now, because I'm a preacher, here's what happens to preachers, because we're a little weird about this kind of stuff. Preachers tend to spiritualize everything, okay? Everything that happens, God has something to do with it. And I think sometime I'm going to get to heaven and God's going to say, dude, I had nothing to do with the stuff that you said. But I tend to kind of do that because I got the preacher thing one. And I started wondering about this idea of, of the fish being here, and then all of a sudden it's gone. And I started started wondering this question right here. I wonder what God feels like after having caught one of us when we are no longer on the line. I wonder what he feels about that. And that's kind of the 
I think the general sense of what we wanted to study here for a few weeks here at Eastside because the author of the book of Hebrews, which might have been the Apostle Paul, but might not have been, we just don't know. So whoever wrote that book, that thought was a big deal to him. It was such a big deal that you're gonna find out as we study here, you're gonna find that he brings that thought in a lot in this magical book that he wrote. And he came up with a genius of a metaphor, a beautiful, incredible metaphor that he came up with, and, and Donnie kind of presented that to us last week, and he kind of he wrote it in the sense starting around the fifth chapter and bleeding into the sixth chapter, this metaphor where he talked about our spiritual journey starts here. And what that means is that everybody who comes to Jesus, everybody, somebody say everybody with me, okay? Every person who comes to Jesus starts out as an infant spiritually, every one of us. All of us start out as babies in Jesus. And the author of the Hebrews book took that metaphor that we all kind of start with, that idea, but the, the intent of the journey is that we would all move toward adulthood. That you come to Jesus as an infant spiritually, and then throughout your spiritual life, you, you grow up and you mature, and you, you become more and more of what God wants you to be throughout the course of your life until finally, spiritually, you are an adult. And he came up with that, that metaphor, and I think it's genius because that's the way it works spiritually, but it also works that way physically. That we're born as infants, and the idea of being born as a baby is that someday you would become an adult. And so as soon as you're born, that process begins, and eventually you start crawling, and then you're walking, and then you're talking, and then you're, you're getting a job, and you're going to school, and you're becoming an adult. And if we ever had an infant, who was born into the world, and then we found out, okay, they're not gonna walk, or they're, they're not gonna talk, or they're not going to be eat on their own, or they're not gonna be able to go to school. So we would look at that and say, something is terribly wrong about that. Because all babies become adults. And the genius of this metaphor is that the author of Hebrews came into that, that concept and he said, Every one of us who come to Jesus, the intent is, is that we would mature to a status of spiritual adulthood. And the problem with that in this section that we're going to look at in the book of Hebrews is that we start finding out that that doesn't always happen. That some people come to Jesus and they're spiritual infants and adulthood Growing up as a believer, an adult believer, it never happens. And they, they live their spiritual life as babies, as infants, and never advance from that. And so, so what the author did, you're going to see that that was just a big deal when he wrote this book, that he dives into that and says there are some things that you can bring into your life, you can incorporate these things into your life so that that will never happen to you. It'll never, ever happen to you. 
You will make sure that you become an infant who's, who's an adult. And we took that section of material in chapters five and six, and we said, let's spend a few weeks here at Eastside and look at how the author said, these are the things that help you grow up. These are the things that mature you. And if you look at the text that we're gonna look at today, you're gonna find out that he mentioned three of them. And so those are so important, we felt we needed to divide into three and deal each weekend with just one of them. And last week, Donnie, our online pastor, spoke for us. He did an incredibly great job, and he described the first way that an infant in Jesus becomes an adult in Jesus. And he talked about the Word of God, of understanding the Word of God, learning the Word of God, applying the Word of God, believing the Word of God, standing on the Word of God, living the way the Word of God wants you to live. And the Hebrews author is saying this, I don't wanna repeat his sermon because he did such a great job, that if this is not a part of your life, watch this, you don't grow up. You stay a spiritual baby. This is incredibly important. Now, that was the first thing that the author talked about. Now, when we come back next week, we're going to talk about the third thing. And the third thing, I'm not going to preach it now, I'm going to preach it next week, is he talks about our works. And what he means by our works is that you're taking your faith and you're doing something with it. You're making it work. You're doing something. And so we're going to talk about that next week, that if this is in your life, then you go from an infant spiritually to an adult. If you ignore that, you never become an adult. Now, just let me say something that's going to make some of y'all mad, but hey, it's Thursday night. You'll get over it before you see me again. There are some of you who don't do this, and you don't do that, and here's the result. You are a baby. You're still a baby. And nobody's had the guts to tell you that. And the book of Hebrews, that beautiful metaphor, he brings that up. Man, we cannot be spiritual infants. Now watch this, because I think it's beautiful. Right in the middle, he gives a warning. It is a strict warning. And you have to know what that warning is. You have to understand it and apply it in your life because if you don't know about that warning, then it's almost like a cliff that you didn't see coming and you end up living your whole life as a spiritual baby, as a spiritual infant. And the warning comes down to one line. And I'm gonna teach you about that one line uh, as we're gathered here today, and here's the warning that he gives. Once you're caught, don't become uncaught. Don't become uncaught. Now that warning comes out for us in one of the most, man, I don't even know how to describe it. I think one of the most intense passages of scripture that I know about. We referenced this a number of weeks ago, and I just teased it because I said we're gonna come back to it, and some of you will remember that. And, and if you've ever read the Word of God and felt a little uneasy, you were probably reading this warning. 
It comes up in the sixth chapter of the book of Hebrews. It's five, six verses long, and I want to just read it to you. I normally put it up here so you can read it with me. I just want you to hear me read it. I want you to hear my spirit. I want you to hear my soul inside of me as I read it in the way in which I believe he wrote it. Verse four. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and are subjecting him to public disgrace. He goes on to write in the next two verses in case that section didn't catch your attention enough. He said, now land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed are receiving the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and it's in danger of being cursed And in the end, it will be burned. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to show you a flow of that text, and we're just going to spend a few minutes on it, and then I want to do some other things with it. But I just want to take that text, and I want to show you the flow. And you'll see it up here on this screen as I do that. It starts by talking about Christians' people. And, and we're, we're talking about people, watch this, we're talking about people who've been caught, okay? The grace of God caught you, and you bought into it. And when you read about these people, the, these were the real, real deal here, okay? These people weren't playing Christian games, man. They had tasted the word of God. They knew about the power of the Holy Spirit. They longed for the coming age. These people knew, they knew the Lord. They were walking on the Lord. They were going from infancy way up to adulthood. He starts by saying, I'm talking about them. That might mean that he's talking about some of you. Now, watch this. The flow then moves to this. Check this out. If they fall away, if they fall away, And the wording of that text literally means somebody who's on the way to adulthood and they consciously make the decision to revert back to infancy. We already know that they're becoming adults here, but at some point in their life, the reverse happens and they start to move away. And you start thinking about this analogy that we're using is they were caught and they are now becoming uncaught. Now, what what does that look like? It's describing somebody who's becoming an adult and now they're moving away from that 
from that which they had grown to. Maybe they had put a death to sin in their life, something in their life that was wrong, and they put it to death, and now they're starting maybe to dabble back into it again. Maybe they used to meet with God every day in prayer. They never missed talking to the Father, and now that they look at it, they haven't prayed to him in weeks. Maybe they used to have a sensitive heart to people who were falling on bad times. Man, can I hurt you, help you? Can I pull you up? Can I do something for you? And lately it's been more of, hey, you take care of you, I'll take care of me. And maybe they used to be in God's house every week, man. It was a priority to be with the family of God, with the Father in his house, never missed a week. And now it seems like there's a reason that comes up every weekend not to be there. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the possibility of Christians who turn around and start to move back toward infancy. Now, watch what happens. The flow of the text then moves to talking about not being allowed to come back. Now, that is an incredibly important part of this text. In fact, the wording is, it is impossible to come back. Now, let's play with that a little bit. Does that mean we lose our salvation every time we sin? Does that mean we fall out of God's good graces every time we miss church? Does that mean we need to be rebaptized every time we have a bad thought? If that were the case, I would need to live in a jacuzzi. I don't know about you. Is that what that means? No, that's not what that means. That would be inconsistent with the teaching of grace and mercy and forgiveness of God in the Bible. That doesn't mean every time you revert backs and just temporarily, now you're, you're out of good grace. That's not what that's talking about. But it is talking about this, that there's a line somewhere determined only by God where over an extended period of time of intentional hardness, against and contrary to all that is God, that there comes a time in which God says, you cannot come back. Now that is brutal. And so you'd say, why? Why is that in the Bible? Why does God make a determination like that? Now, I want you to personalize it. Why would God say that to you if you had reverted back, if I had turned around and walked away? Why would God say, enough, you will not ever come back? Well, the flow of the text tells us why. Check out the next part. Because you are dismissing the beauty of the cross. The wording there is almost like this, that Jesus died on the cross, and that didn't capture my heart enough to keep me here. And so I guess he's got to die a second time, and a third time, and a fourth time, and a fifth time, until I finally get it. Now, if you let that get really heavy on you, that will penetrate your heart. I did that this week. What if God would say to me or to you? How many times does he have to die until you get it? That's the thinking. And so reverting back as if the cross was not enough to capture my heart. And then watch how the flow goes from there. We then 
put Jesus to public disgrace. Our testimony is ruined. People that know us, hey, you used to be in the faith. You used to be an adult. What happened? You've walked away from it. That's not in your life anymore. And so therefore, God must not be this good, big thing that you claimed. You've ruined your testimony. And Jesus is now up for disgrace publicly. And then those strange last couple of verses, if you can't come back and you're all the way back there, then we will relegate you to a point of being cursed and burned. That is brutal stuff. That is one of those places in Scripture that once you read it, it bothers you so much that you think, I don't know if I want to read that anymore. I have found myself reading the book of Hebrews and getting done with chapter four, and I go, I wonder what chapter seven talks about, and just skip over it because it is so intense. Now, I asked myself as I put that stuff together and got ready to share it with you guys, started playing around with it a little bit and realized how heavy it was. I, I realized that in this setting that we're at right here, that text is applying to people who aren't here. If you're here, that's not you. That applies to people who aren't here. And so the point of the whole passage is to warn us, don't let this become your story. Don't let this happen to you. And I don't know how that affects you, but for me, I, I allow that to kind of soak in this teaching and I'm thinking, man, I don't ever want that to happen to me. I don't want that to be my story. I don't want that to be your story. I heard a comedian one time, he was talking about the fact that if men had to give birth to children instead of women, so guys, it was on us, okay? And the comedian said, if men, some of y'all laughed about that already. If men had to give birth, they said that every family would only have one child because the man would give birth and say, I ain't doing that again, I ain't doing that again. And I don't agree with that. I don't think that comedian's right at all. I don't think every family would have one child. I think the human race would become extinct and here's why. I'd see my buddy go through it, and what do you think I say? That ain't happening to me ever, okay? That's what I think about the text. I don't ever want that to happen to me. And so I did um, kind of what I do when I write sermons. I, I sat and I kind of understood what we were gonna talk about, and I've kind of taught the text here to the degree that we're gonna talk about it here. And I ended, and we could just kind of close up right now, okay? And we go home and just kind of be heavy. Man, that is a wicked passage. But for me, the way that I apply scripture and the way that I think about it and the way that I feel I have been called by God to teach our family here I have to ask the question, what do I do about this? What do I do about this? 
And so how can I make sure that I am always going to be on the trajectory toward adulthood and that I don't turn back and, and play with that game of potentially arriving at that point? So, so I'm just thinking through that as I'm writing this. And I, I sat at my office. I started writing Okay, if I do this, that'll help me. And if I do that, that'll protect me. And if I don't do this, you know, that's going to prevent me from turning. And I was coming down with all this list of my own stuff, and it was good stuff. But the problem was, it was my stuff. And I realized, God, do you tell us anything about that? Is there anything that you say that this will prevent you from moving to that line? And so I started seeing a connection that I had not seen before. That's why you ought to never quit reading the Bible. I've been reading it for 45 years, and I still see, man, I didn't see that. What I noticed is that this was such a big deal to the author of Hebrews that he keeps coming back to it. He keeps referencing it throughout the rest of the letter. It's such a big deal to him that he just can't let it go. And when he arrives at the 12th chapter, this all happened in chapter five and six, and he just kind of references it every once in a while, and then he gets to the 12th chapter, and it's like he jumps right back there. And I never saw that he went back there in chapter 12. And so I start reading the 12th chapter, in particularly, just the first couple sentences, and I say, that's it. That's what protects us from becoming infants again. It's right there. God said, do these things. And so I took the 12th chapter and I started playing with it and diving into it and the things that preachers do to study the text. And, and I started writing some thoughts of what I see him telling us. And I ended up with three words on a piece of paper. And this was all just for me, gang. I'm saying, Hastings, you got to make sure those are in your life. And the more I thought about them, the more I realized that I think maybe some of you might need those too. So I want to close out what I'm going to talk about today. And when I say close out, <laughs> that doesn't mean I'm almost done, okay? I want to I end this part of it by sharing with you what God tells us in his word, how you can prevent this ever happening to you. And there's three words, and these are just kind of my words that I clump these thoughts together. I just want you to see them. I want you to see the first one is the word together. These are your takeaways. I want you to make sure that you have this going on in your life, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about here in a few minutes when I talk about it. Uh, chapter 12 in Hebrews, verse 1, it starts out with this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now leave that up there just for a second. You'll see that's chapter 12, verse 1, the first part of it. And those of you who know about the book of Hebrews know that before chapter 12, chapter 11, that's the faith chapter, dude. That's all these incredible men and women of old who became adults. They became spiritual adults in their life, and man, life was hard for them and tough for them and beat them up, but they did not turn back. They didn't turn back. And so chapter 12 says, 
Okay, because of all those examples, man, because of all those people who got it, who understood it, make that your mantra that you're gonna stay together, this idea that we're all on this growth track together. We're gonna move from infancy to, to adulthood, watch this, as a team, not as individuals. And the power of chapter 12 in the first verse is you cannot do this alone. And I know some of you are going to argue with me about that, and I will argue with you until Christ comes back for this. If you want to live your Christian life outside of this family, if you're a part of our church, and you want to do it on your own, and you don't want to be a part of the things that we do, and you don't want to make this an imperative of your life of gathering and worship, and you just want to go through a season of life where you do it all by yourself, I promise you that you will become an infant at some point. You cannot do it alone. It's not built that way. Some of you might remember back in the 1990s, there was a heart-wrenching episode of horrific starvation over in the country of Somalia on the eastern side of Africa. Hundreds and thousands of human beings were dying because they didn't have any food to give at all. United Nations began relief efforts of, of shipping in food and saving thousands and thousands of lives. But there was a Somalia warlord by the name of Muhammad Adid who began to attack and kill the peacekeepers. I mean, wrap that around your head a little bit that the world is helping your country and saving your people and a group of people didn't like it and started killing the people who were bringing food. The United States stood up and they said, that's not gonna happen. And they built a mission into Somalia that the intent was to capture two of Adid's lieutenants and stop the attacks. And that mission went bad, as many of you will remember. It ended up being a horrific 18-hour battle called the Battle of Mogadishu, where 18 of our people died and hundreds of Somalis died during that 18-hour period. There was a movie made about that. It is a brutally difficult movie to watch that I am not recommending that you watch. I'm not saying not to, but I don't say, hey man, he told us to go watch. It is brutal. There's a scene in it that stands out if you ever watch it. And our guys had just been pulverized in this one section, and one of the sergeants looks at one of the guys on the team and he said, get in the truck and drive. Take us through this, this terrible point here. Get in the truck and drive. And, and the guy looked at him and said, I can't drive, Sarge. I'm shot. And the sergeant said, everybody shot. Get in the truck and drive. Man, do you feel like that over the last couple of years? Come on. We all been shot. We've all had hard times. We've all had difficulties over the last couple of years. All of us have. We've all been shot. But we cannot become adults in Jesus alone and wounded. We need each other. And so you gotta be here. 
And I challenge our people online that if you're just meeting Jesus now, man, we're so happy that you are, but your next step is to be here because you can't do it in your living room over a long period of time. You just can't. We gotta do this together. And the Hebrews author believes in that so much that he comes back to it in the 12th chapter and he says, you gotta get this right or you might some point in your life start reverting back toward the line. Notice what he says next. I put this word down forward, and I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but he then goes into the second part of that first verse, and look what he said. He said, let us throw off everything that hinders in the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And I love his imagery there, that we are running toward adulthood, okay? We're running toward adulthood. And think about running somewhere in a race or just jogging around your neighborhood. Think about doing that while you have heavy weights on. Or think about doing that if your shoelaces are tangled together and it'd be impossible to keep running if you were weighted down or if your shoelaces were all tangled up. And if you go back to that text, you find out that the image that he says is that is what sin will do to you. That sin will prevent you from moving to adulthood. And so I think that's so clear and so self-explanatory. I'm not gonna jump into it. Because you know, you know, all of us know, if there is a sin in your life that you are holding on to and you're not letting go, watch this. It is impossible for you to become an adult with that. You will almost always revert to infancy. Now let me show you the last one that he talked about. And it's the one that grabs my heart. And I used it simply as the word up. So I saw together and forward and I saw this word up this concept of up, because in the second verse, he uses this phrase, and it's not gonna rattle you, but just look at it. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And you read that and you think, okay, duh, okay? That sounds like the right thing to say, isn't it, okay? I'm an infant in Jesus, I'm gonna become an adult, how do I do that? Just keep your eyes on Jesus, dude, just keep looking at Jesus. And you say, okay, that sounds right, that sounds right. But then I ask the question, why did he put that in there? But what's that mean? I think where he goes with the rest of the chapter, this is where I think he is. He's saying that Jesus is faithful to you. That Jesus is never going to turn away from you. That Jesus is never going to have enough of you. And if my eyes are on the faithfulness of Jesus, gang, we sang about that. Aquila and I don't match up together with what I'm gonna preach about and what he puts songs together. What we had happen in this room over the last hour was a movement of the Holy Spirit because one of those songs talked about the faithfulness of Jesus and that's where the second verse goes. Keep your eyes on the faithfulness of Jesus and the more you realize his faithfulness to you, you know what that'll do to you? You will never turn away from him, ever. Keep your eyes on Jesus. I want to tell you something that I experienced a few weeks ago. Susan and I have a nephew and niece that we adore. We love, I can't tell you how much we love Will 
and Ashley. Um, they live over near uh, in the Lexington, Kentucky area. We have forgiven them of that. It still bothers us from time to time, but we forgive them that they bleed blue. But they live in the Lexington area. They have made a wonderful life for themselves. They're just a beautiful, beautiful family. He's a captain in the local fire department. She's involved in government, in law enforcement. Um, they have great jobs. They have two beautiful little girls that we adore. Our whole family just adores them. And so we've got this just rock star uh, family of ours, nephew and niece, living over there. And a number of years ago, they announced to their family um, their parents and Susan and I and our extended family, they announced that, that they just had felt a nudging to get into helping in the fostering of troubled kids. And they just said, you know, it's something that nudges at us, it grabs our heart, and we know that kids are out there that are just, they didn't get the breaks that we did, and we just want to help them. And, and so we've watched over the years, they would bring in these kids that come from different, different circumstances and they would pour love on them and our families would pour love on them and we'd all fall in love with them and then they would get reunited with their parents and if you've ever been a part of that or seen it, man, that's, that's, there's a joy, that reunion with their family and there's a heartbreak that you don't get to see them anymore. I still think of one little boy they had that I just fell in love with this little guy and he's back with his family, and I rejoice with that, but man, I just miss him so much. So we have watched over the number of years, you know, kids come and kids go in their family, and we just, we just think, man, Will and Ashley, you guys, you guys just, you just, you're just the bomb, man. You just, you got it happening. A day came um, a while ago where they got a call that there was a brother and a sister that needed a place to stay. And Will and Ashley heard their story, and they answered the bell. And these two young children came into their home, and over time, the backstory of those kids became known. <coughs> I'll just I'll just let it suffice that if you knew what happened to those kids, that you would not only be heartbroken and angry among the saddest stories you will ever hear in all of your life. And so Will and Ashley's heart broke and they brought them in to their home and they said, we'll take care of these kids for a while and pour some love into them and and days moved into weeks, and weeks moved into months, and months moved into a couple years. And eventually, Will and Ashley made known to their family that these kids are supposed to be ours. The long process of adoption was begun, and the final step fell into place just two or three months ago when a judge looked at the biological mother and father and removed their rights as birth parents that they will never be able to have contact with their children ever, ever again. That shows you the extent of the story. The formal adoption was held in a courtroom about three weeks ago. 
Susan and I were honored to be invited, and so we're driving over uh, somewhere in uh, the eastern part of, I don't even know where we were. We were driving over there somewhere to this courtroom in this little town, and as I'm driving, I got that preacher thing going, so I'm applying, you know, I'm spiritualizing everything, and I'm realizing that we're going to go, we're going to watch the adoption of these kids, and I got to realizing that I've been adopted. You've been adopted. Ephesians 1.5, he chose us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. And so we get there, and in my mind, I'm not sharing this with Susan, I'm not saying this with anybody, but in my mind, I'm just overwhelmed. I'm not even going to see the adoption of these kids with Will and Ashley. I'm going to be reminded. I'm going to have a spiritual experience of a reminder that God adopted me. As I walk in, I sit in the courtroom, and there's, I don't know, 20 of us, and we're sitting there, and I knew something was up when the uh, bailiff and the court personnel came around and started handing boxes of tissues to everybody. I'm thinking, what, what is this about? And before the judge ever came into the room, the attorney on our side of the family, the attorney walked up to the judge's desk, and they, they put a a laptop, a tablet, up on the desk of the judge facing this way, and she punched a button, and these pictures of the kids started coming up, this loop of the kids' pictures, like you would see at a, at a wedding or something like that, and, and you're just thinking, this is the strangest thing there. What are you showing these pictures for? And then music starts to play in the courtroom, and, and Ashley had chosen to play in the room there, one of the songs that we sing here a lot here at Eastside, Reckless Love. And the next time that we ever hear that song in here and sing it, I want you to, I want you to, to key in on the first lyrics, the first sentence of the song, and it goes like this. Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. Do you remember about 45 minutes ago when we were singing that? And we sat there and, and we watched this video and gospel music being played in a court of law and hearing those lyrics as if God were looking at those children and saying, before you ever could speak, I had a plan for you. Before any of this stuff ever happened to you, I serenaded you. And I realized that before I ever became born in this world, God sang over me, and he sang over you. And so I'm looking around the courtroom, and there's sniffling going on, and then I realized why they gave us the tissue, and then the judge came in. And she bypassed all the all rise stuff because she said, today is not about attention on me. And she then looked at us after she sat down and she said, almost every time we're in this room, it's bad news. But today is the one time in which joy is in this room when families come together. Do you know something? You will appear before a judge. And you don't have to be afraid. 
You don't have to be scared. You don't have to be worried. Because your appearance as an adopted child of God is the joyous thing that will ever happen to you. The judge then took some papers and handed them to the lawyer. And the lawyer had to ask some formal questions of Will and Ashley. And it was all legalese, and I imagine most people were, were tuning out. I was trying to pay attention to the questions and the answers. And I remember one that rocked me to the point that I, I literally almost went to my knees as I heard the attorney ask Ashley, and again, I won't use the legal term, I don't know how they did it, but it essentially was this. Do these children have any resources or any kind of stuff that they have, and the reason you're adopting them is because you're going to be able to profit after the adoption? And Ashley said, absolutely not. And then it struck me. They are adopting them not because they are bringing anything to the table. They are adopting them because they're loved. And that's why he adopted me. He adopted you not because you brought him joy, not because you brought something to the table that God is going to say, oh man, this is incredible. I get this from you. He adopts you because he loves you. And I'm just, I'm just broken as a, as a guy there realizing that these kids have nothing as I do, but loved by the Father. And then something happened that Susan had told me about before, and I'm glad she did because I, I don't know how I would have dealt with that. I knew that they would take their new last name. I knew that. I knew that. What Susan had hinted to me on the way is I think they're also taking their middle names. And so the judge looked at both the brother and sister and explained as he looked at the daughter and says, you're not only going to be taking your mom and dad's last name, but honey, you are going to take your new mom's middle name also. And she looked at the son and said, now you're not only going to get a new name of your mom and dad, but you're going to take the middle name of your new dad, and there's no question at all who you belong to. She had it printed, and she handed it to both of them and said, that's your new name. Are you okay with that? And they both teased and smiled. There's not a greater compliment you could ever have than someone to call you Christian. At this point, I got my arm around my wife, hoping that there's an ambulance somewhere because <laughs> I'm blubbering like an idiot. I looked at her and she's a mess of muck and just we're just losing our mind. And then it ended in something I didn't know that they did. And the judge looked at Will and Ashley and says, I will have the new birth certificates made up with their new names and the old birth certificates dismantled because this is forever.
And Jesus will never turn me away. I have been adopted forever. Keep your eyes on his faithfulness to you and you will never turn away. Watch the story of somebody who understands that.